0: Well, good morning. What an incredible privilege it is to be here this morning and be able to open the Word of God uh, with you. Just a couple of things before I start. Uh, Youth, you'll probably have grabbed a youth bulletin. There's lots to take notes on today. And uh, you'll notice you'll really have to earn your prize today because of all the things that um, I'm asking for. But you will notice that there's an extra face on the back uh, this morning. So uh, Duncan or Mr. Taylor is there now, and he will be able to... um, help you kind of debrief the message and see what you got out of it and dialogue with you about it. So I encourage you young people to do that. Um, On a more personal note, uh, many of you know that Carolyn and the kids have been away for three weeks now and I just wanted to say thank you. I have been the recipient of incredible biblical hospitality. So (laughs) I've been in many of your homes over the last three weeks uh, to the point that I've hardly had to grocery shop. So thank you very much. I actually, even 10 minutes before the service started, someone handed me a box of fresh-baked muffins. So thank you very much. Carolyn and the kids um, are having a great time. We'll be back uh, next weekend with us. But thank you for your prayers and, of course, your hospitality. So this morning and often as I look around at creation, I often find myself, as you probably do too, in awe at the complexity of God's design. Have you ever marveled at the incredible sense of direction that God has given to the majority of animals, fish, birds, insects? Just incredible. Far greater than even the sense of direction that He has given to us as men, right? He's given to animals in terms of finding their way home. Salmon often travel upstream 4,000 kilometers um, from saltwater to freshwater uh, to find their home to spawn. The monarch butterfly, which is famous for its migratory patterns, travel from southern Ontario down to almost Mexico, or sometimes into Mexico every year, travel 5,000 kilometers. Or what about the Great African Migration, where millions and millions of zebra and wildebeest and antelope follow rain and thereby food um, through Tanzania and Kenya each year? However, the king of migration is hands down the arctic tern. Maybe not a very popular or famous uh, type of bird, but it moves back and forth every year from the arctic circle to the antarctic circle, getting two summers every year. So now that's what I would call a snowbird, or maybe someone that's afraid of the dark anyway, right? So, uh, incredible. Closer to home, um, raccoons possess similar navigational skills. When we bought our current home a number of years ago, um, it came with a family of coons in the attic, and we knew this. And um, after becoming proficient in live trapping, uh, actually Carolyn probably wouldn't use that word proficient, uh, competent at, um, at live trapping, um, I started researching the legalities around releasing these raccoons. And uh, many of you may not know this, but it, you have to, when you live trap a raccoon, you have to release it within a kilometer of where you've trapped it. So needless to say with their sense of direction. um, They beat me home every time. (laughs) And so with, I know, some of your help, we had to find alternate living arrangements and a different strategy uh, for trapping these raccoons. But whether it be the leatherback turtle going across the ocean or the humpback whale moving from polar to equatorial regions every year, um, these animals use sight, they use smell, they use wind, they even use the Earth's magnetic field to find their way home, to feed, to breed, or to escape harsh climates. However, God did create at least one animal without that uncanny instinct to find their way home. You guessed it, sheep. Okay? If sheep stray into unfamiliar territory, they become completely disoriented and can't find their way back home. And sheep is what we're going to look at and study and explore today. I know as soon as I said the word sheep that your mind probably uh, went to many different passages in scripture where you see the sheep and the shepherd, shepherd imagery uh, used. Um, but stay with me. Let's talk for a moment about uh, sheep, trusting that you might learn something uh, new about this creature today. Now, something you probably know, sheep spend most of their time eating and drinking, and if they become lost, they're helpless to find food and water on their own. Uh, Left to their own vices, sheep will indiscriminately eat all kinds of plants. Poisonous, healthy, uh, they'll even overgraze their own pasture and ruin it. They need to be led to water that is pure, that is not impure or stagnant. Not too hot, not too cold, not moving too fast. You probably comes to mind the psalmist saying, he leads me to quiet waters, that's in the sheep context. It doesn't stop there. Here's something you might not know. Because of their wool uh, that secretes a large volume of an oily lanolin that permeates their fleece, there's many pieces of dirt and um, grass and wind-blown debris that get caught in in their wool. And sheep have the complete inability to clean themselves, so they remain soiled until their shepherd is able to shear them. Between shearings, that dirty, sticky accumulation must be cut from under their tails, cut away from under their tails, or they completely lose the ability to eliminate, then they become sick, and then they die. I know, kind of gross to think, but that's, that's kind of some, some of their uh, attributes. They are also naturally passive and virtually defenseless. As many parents know, if you've ever taken your uh, child to a petting zoo, um, the way that sheep respond when a child chases after it. When attacked by predators, their only recourse is to flee in panic. The shepherd must continually be on guard to defend and to rescue that sheep from danger. So it's not surprising then that throughout the New Testament, Jesus likened the disoriented, confused, unclean, and spiritually lost crowds to flocks of sheep without shepherds. They could not feed themselves spiritually and had no one to lead or protect them. The prophet Isaiah compares humanity's lost condition to that of a sheep that has strayed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The preceding sheep and shepherd imagery was very familiar to the people in the first century, as they were an agriculturally based society. But for us to fully understand and see the richness of this passage this morning, I wanted all of us to have at least, at least a foundational knowledge of what, what sheep were all about. Uh, so with that in mind, if I can ask you to grab your Bibles and please open to 1 Peter 5 and stand with me as I read verses 1 through 4. So this is a passage that uh, Jay touched on this morning. is very appropriate as we commissioned uh, Duncan to the plurality of elders here at South Shore. 1 Peter 5, uh, verses 1 through 4. you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, as we uh, dig this morning into this seemingly simple and straightforward text, Father, we pray that it will have a profound impact on us and our lives. Father, may it shape the way that we view our shepherds, but also develop in us the heart of a shepherd. Father, that we may uh, have an eternal focus. Father, give us a passion for the lost, but also a desire to pour into those believers that you have intentionally placed in our lives. Father, I pray this morning that my words will fall away so that your message will be abundantly clear to us this morning, I pray. Amen. So as we've been encouraged over and over again over the last number of years, that when we are exegeting any text, it's important for us to take a step back to start and look at two things, the context and the structure. So that's where we're going to start before we uh, dive into the text itself. So um, this letter was written by the Apostle Peter from Rome, referred to as Babylon at that time. It was written to the believers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, those are all just fancy names for roman provinces at the time they were collectively known as asia minor so peter starts his letter by praising god for the plan of salvation in chapter one um, followed by a challenge to believers to live holy lives as part of their new identity in christ and the promise of a future inheritance he describes the christian life as a battle um, but urges believers to use their relationships, whether it's with the governing authorities of the time, uh, whether it's in the context of ser- servant and master, or even within their marriages, to be witnesses to others. Then partway through chapter 3, he really introduces the theme of 1 Peter, which is the suffering and persecution that will inevitably come to believers and how they are resp- how they are to respond to that suffering. Christians are to persevere and look beyond their suffering to the end of the story, that being future glory. Adam preached the same message last week out of Romans 12, right? Romans 12, verse 12 that we studied last week. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. He preached life is hard, don't dwell on it. Look to the eternal future and pray your way to the end. And that's what we'll look at here this morning as well. That's where we were at at the end of chapter 4 in 1 Peter. Having discussed the behavior of the believers in Asia Minor within their cultural conflict and within uh, the suffering they were enduring, Paul now turns to intra-church matters um, before essentially ending the letter with another paragraph on suffering. So at first glance, these four verses to start 1 Peter 5 seem a little bit awkward they're kind of sandwiched in between two paragraphs dealing with suffering however this is not an accidental addition this is a logical explanation of the intra-church solidarity solidarity that's needed at a time of heavy persecution pressure on a social group can act to disintegrate the social group without strong leadership in place so it's that leadership that we're going to look at this morning The passage in 1 Peter 5 starts with a so, the particle so, and is similar to the particle therefore. I know in a lot of translations they actually use um, the first word is therefore. Um, It helps us transition from chapter 4 to chapter 5. So in light of the suffering and persecution first century believers are experiencing, here is the call to leaders. Here is how leaders are to respond. Peter is exhorting the leaders. The Greek term exhort, means to call alongside or in a more general sense to encourage or compel someone in a certain direction. It's exactly what Peter is doing here. He is exhorting the leaders um, of the local church. So with that context um, established, let's dive into the structure. So if you look at uh, chapter 5 verse 1, the structure can be divided into a number of different parts. I've divided it up into three. Okay? The first one being, who's the recipient? Who is this part of the letter written to? Who is addressed? Who is it dealing with? The second part is, who's the source? Right? Who's written this? Who's, this? who's this coming from? Who's this message um, from? Or who are the sources? And the majority of this text that we'll look at is the command. Okay? What is the command? Okay? Uh, who is the command to? Um, how is the command uh, fulfilled? And, and why? Why? Um, So that's kind of how we'll look at it. The intended recipient is is covered in verse uh, 1a, and then the source is looked at in the end of the first verse, and then we move into uh, verse 2, which looks at what, um, and then uh, also who, and how we are to shepherd, and then why. So I know some of you that may have a type A personality may be asking, well, where is where and when, right? We have the other questions, so we're missing those two things. Well, if you look back at uh, 1 Peter uh, 1 verse 1, uh, those answers are there. The, the where is Asia Minor that we've talked about, and the when is in the first century as this is written by, uh, by Peter. Uh, so let's dive in and look at the intended recipients. Who was this written for? Who was this directed to? This is not rocket science. If we look at uh, the first verse so I exhort the elders among you obviously the uh, the uh, recipients here in this passage are the elders so before we um, talk a little bit more about what the text and what the command is and where the source is let's talk a little bit about elders I just wanna take a minute because there's a lot in this little um, phrase so I exhort the elders among you now a little disclaimer before you, we, before we start uh, studying this passage has been incredibly humbling for me, and a continued reminder of just the huge privilege and honor it is to imperfectly serve you in this way here at Soshore. So, as we look at God's design and benchmark for elders, don't miss the measure of grace that He has extended to your shepherds here at Soshore. The first and most obvious point here is that God affirms that the spiritual leadership and responsibility falls to the elders. This is unmistakable and consistent throughout the New Testament passages that deal with the local church. It's mentioned in Acts 11, it's mentioned in 1 Timothy 5, and then explicitly again in Titus when Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Elders in every town, in every church. Secondly, the qualifications for such men are clearly laid out in Scripture as well, as Jay talked about this morning, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Um, But we have commissioned Duncan this morning, so I know you're very familiar with those passages over the last couple of months. Thirdly, the function of elders. The New Testament tends to use three different words interchangeably to describe this group of men. Elder, overseer, and shepherd. Elder, emphasizing the man's spiritual maturity, necessary for such ministry, overseer, stating the responsibility of guardianship, and shepherd, which we'll look at a little later, the priority of feeding or teaching the word of God. The final thing I want you to notice here is the significance of Peter using the plural form of the word elder. In reference to ministry, this ministry, the term always appears in the plural in the New Testament, affirming that the office, was designed for a plurality of men. Now, there are a few exceptions. When men or apostles or elders refer to themselves in Scripture, such as John did and, and Peter does here as a fellow elder, um, the singular form is used. And when they launch an accusation against an elder, the singular form is used. But otherwise, the elders, that term is always used as a plural term in Scripture. Not only does plurality provide more ministry care, but it also provides some important safeguards. For the elders. Firstly, protecting the church against error. Paul to the church in Corinth let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. There's accountability here. Nobody is speaking independently. Secondly, a plurality of elders preserves the church against imbalance or dominance of one leader, overemphasizing one doctrine or one practice. And thirdly, the plurality of elders avoids uh, discontinuity in the church. Hypothetically, if one man among the plurality of elders is sent from the church to take up a teaching assignment in Dubai, right? that man will be, can be replaced with minimal disruption to the church because there's a plurality of elders. It's not one man leading. The benefits of protection... Balance, continuity that a plurality of elders brings is essential to every local church. So now that we've looked uh, and established the recipients, that being elders, of this command, let's investigate the source. Verse 1 continues As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. The source of this exhortation is Peter, a well respected apostle of Jesus who humbly identified himself with them, referring to himself as a fellow elder. Rather than take advantage of his respected position as an apostle and elevate himself, he was able to emphasize, empathize with the task and understood what the other elders were experiencing and facing with first century believers. Peter puts nothing upon them that he is not willing to do himself. Peter is also a witness of the sufferings of Christ, being with Christ in the garden, accompanying him to the palace of the high priest, and very likely being a spectator of Christ's suffering on the cross. The fact that he had seen the suffering and risen Christ affirmed the reality of his apostolic identity and gave him authority. Moving on, the term witness is now used, and in Greek that word is martis, and it has a bit of a double meaning. In our, English ter- in our English language, it does too. One who personally sees and experiences something is one form of the term witness. Another meaning for it is one who then testifies to what they have seen. Because so many who gave their testimony to their experiences with Christ were killed, the term martyred came to refer to those killed for their Christian witness. That's where we get the term martyred from. In Peter's case... His being a witness to the sufferings of Jesus and being commissioned to then proclaim those sufferings and declare the gospel message made him a trustworthy source to encourage the elders. Peter then proceeds to motivate through anticipation the mention of future glory as one who is a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter could offer the elders the genuine hope an eternal reward and an eternal reward for their faithful service interesting to note here that Peter had already seen some of this future glory Okay, think about the transfiguration Matthew 17 right when Jesus took Peter James and John up the mountain it wasn't fully revealed but he got a glimpse of, of future glory the glory that is going to be revealed is the return of Christ when he comes in full expression of his glory to judge the ungodly to reward his own, and to establish his kingdom forever, as we see is promised in Revelation. A reminder that apostles, elders, believers alike will partake in the glory, that they will receive the blessing and reward that comes from Christ himself. That would have been a powerful motivation for Peter's readers here. Now that we've spent some time looking at the recipient, looking at the source of this passage, let's dig into the meat of the passage, the command. What is the exhortation? In light of the suffering and persecution, what are the elders being exhorted to do? And it's relatively simple. As the text reads, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. The command is clear. To shepherd. That is to protect to care for and to feed the flock. So, we started this morning looking at sheep. They are easily lost. They eat and they drink indiscriminately. They quickly become dirty. They're virtually defenseless and vulnerable, and sometimes even a little naive. As a result, the demand for faithful shepherding is compelling here. And when the church is under severe persecution, as it was in Peter's day, it's even more vo- vulnerable and there's even a greater need for strong, godly, and effective shepherding. The image of shepherding shepherding is an Old Testament um, image that is also common in the New Testament. But the command to the elders to shepherd is actually only seen twice in the New Testament, in Acts and then here in Peter. In Acts 20, 28, Scripture reads, "'Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock,' in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Both Acts and Peter really emphasize this oversight or watching over the church. So the first function of a shepherd is protection, spiritual guardianship, realizing that it is inevitable that the flock will come under attack. Now, this attack may come in a variety of different ways. It may be false teachers, it may be political oppression, it may be divisive individuals, but the attacks will come. Secondly, this passage implores elders to care for the church of God, which includes all the positive elements of spiritual leadership and discipleship toward greater maturity in likeness. However, the chief objective of shepherding is the feeding of the flock through preaching and teaching. If that's done well, then it aids to play into the first two functions in terms of the protection and care. Peter received firsthand instruction on this responsibility from Christ himself in John 21. John 21.15 reads, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. So there's straight from Christ's mouth, Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. The shepherd's task is not simply to tell people what they want to hear, but to strengthen them with the deep roots or the deep truths of spiritual food that produces discernment, conviction, consistency, power, the effective testimony to the greatness of the saving work of Christ. The mandate to shepherds is simple. Give them biblical truth, biblical truth, and more biblical truth. In Old Testament times, whenever Israel's shepherds failed to feed or care for the people they were entrusted with, God, through his prophets, rebuked them. Jeremiah declared, in chapter 23, "'Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture,' declares the Lord." Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and I will bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Wow. What a rebuke. How does that sit with you, Jay? Adam? Glenn? Welcome aboard, Duncan. (laughs) Second thoughts? It strikes fear, the fear of God into me, as it should. The task of shepherding carries with it an unequaled responsibility before the Lord because of who we are entrusted with. So who are these individuals that we are called to shepherd? And that's where the text goes next. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Answer is simple, the flock of God. The elders have the most serious delegated stewardship to shepherd, not their own flock, but the flock of God. Christ came to earth to redeem his church, and after he ascended, he sent his Holy Spirit to empower his church with certain spiritual gifts but also with men to shepherd his people. The fact that Christ purchased the flock with his own blood speaks to the value that he places on his church. And then what trust that he's placed it in the hands of imperfect men. What shepherd could have care of any part of God's flock and treat it carelessly? As elders, we must constantly be reminding ourselves that we have no proprietary rights over the flock. You are God's people, his flock. As an aside here, before we get into exactly how this shepherding is to be done, I want us to step back, and I want to see how you are hearing this message. My fear is that as you read this text and as you listen to these words, an exhortation to elders from Peter, my fear is that you may tune me out and say, well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not an elder, or maybe for whatever reason, at this point, I simply uh, don't feel qualified to be an elder. Or maybe you don't aspire to be an elder, as Jay touched on. So this message that you're preaching doesn't really apply to me this morning. But continue on preaching to yourself, Blair. This is great. I'll listen in. Maybe that's your perspective this morning. Or maybe you're completely tuned in and with every word you're evaluating us as shepherds here at South Shore. The notes that you're taking right now look more like a feedback form or a list of things or ways that we've let you down. We know we are shepherding imperfectly. And as I look around on Sundays, I often say to myself, oh, I meant to send that note of encouragement after I prayed for that brother or sister this week. Or, oh, I really wanted to take that guy out after I talked to his mom about the parenting challenges she was having with him this week. Or, I really wanted to take this gentleman out for coffee who called and really wanted to talk. Okay? Or, I forgot to bring that resource for so-and-so that I had promised. We know we are doing this imperfectly. I'm quite aware of my shortcomings, as I assume Jay and Adam and Glenn and Duncan are as well. We'll continue to ask for grace from each of you as we inevitably continue to make mistakes as we shepherd. So then, how are we to read and apply the text this morning? Sure, there are a few of you that are elders, but I would guess that each of you have people that God has placed in your life to protect, to care for, and to teach. As men, you have been called to shepherd your families, in parenting, moms, you play a pivotal role in the shepherding of your children. Older women, women having been equipped by the elders, you have been called to care and teach the younger women here. Be it a neighbor, a co-worker, a teammate, or a sibling, there are people in your lives that need to be discipled in their faith. Take these biblical principles that you will look at this morning and apply them to those relationships. Realizing, acknowledging that those people that you are called to care for, to protect and to feed were created in God's image. So I urge you this morning for the rest of this morning to listen to it through that lens. So let's get back to the text on how do we shepherd. Starts in verse two. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. We've talked about the term elder being interchangeable with the overseer and shepherd terms as well. And here we read, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising exercising oversight. We really don't have any new information other than that shepherds must watch over their sheep to assess the condition so as to lead and guard and feed them. Peter then moves on to three contrasting statements, kind of these not-but statements involved in providing biblical spiritual oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Three perils to avoid. Serving under compulsion, for shameful gain, and by domineering. And three attributes to embrace, Serving willingly and eagerly, and by being examples to the flock. This is in no way an exhaustive list for shepherding, but does identify for us some cautions inherent with the shepherding task. So, how are elders to shepherd? The first instruction is willingly, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. The first danger Peter mentions is shepherding under compulsion rather than as a willing servant ministering voluntarily. Now, I know what you're thinking, and it's true. The elders uh, did not volunteer or select themselves, but they were selected by God through others. Yet they are not to think of their ministry that they serve in as something that is forced upon them. Even if they had wanted that role in the first century, um, the stress of shepherding and added danger, which it put both them and their families to, um, could well make the ministry an unwanted burden. Peter wants elders to serve with joy and not with groaning. The joy is not in the position, but knowing that you are being used by God. In Judaism, the, a volunteer is a person that places themselves uh, at God's disposal, be it in a military sense or in some type of other type of sacrifice. That was the context of the term volunteer. Think about things that you may do out of compulsion. Extended family reunions, children's piano recitals, sorry, Twyla, Uh, anything related to Valentine's Day. Now, that's my list, okay? I'm sure you have a list as well, and I can share my list today because my family is not here. Um, So take a minute, go ahead, and share things that you do out of compulsion with the person next to you. No, don't do that. That's not healthy. But do ask yourself this question. How is your attitude while doing these things? Where's your heart at? That's what Peter is getting at here. The shepherd must be heart-motivated rather than forced to be faithful. He must be passionate about his privileged duty to serve Christ, not indifferent. When the heart is fully Christ and driven by a love for him, there's no need for external motivational pressure. The second um, attribute is exercising oversight not for shameful gain, but eagerly. The next danger for shepherds to avoid is the temptation to be motivated by money or material benefits. Now, elders were compensated for their services, as we see in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. It is biblical. Those with a greater commitment and excellence in teaching the word and feeding the flock um, should receive greater acknowledgement and remuneration. However, The basic biblical qualification for an elder makes it clear that he is characterized as a selfless servant committed to sacrifice and not preoccupied by money or materialism. Paul manifests the right attitude in Acts 20. Listen to this passage out of Acts. I coveted no no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. This verse also came to mind, for godliness with contentment is great gain. However, shameful gain, as seen in the text, goes well beyond just seeking wealth and materialism. It speaks to this sordid acquisition of it. True shepherds will never use their ministry position to steal money or acquire it dishonestly as false shepherds or heretics who masquerade as God's servants um, do to make themselves rich. True shepherds eagerly rejoice at the privilege to serve even at personal cost with no need for personal wealth to motivate them. He should serve with eagerness because of his high calling, not because of any type of material reward. Finally, those called to shepherd can be impaired by the desire to sinfully dominate others. Shepherds are to exercise oversight, not domineering over those uh, in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Domineering indicates intensely lording something over a person or a circumstance. Any kind of autocratic, oppressive, intimidating leadership typically characterizes the leadership style or methodology of an unregenerate man, a perversion of the office of elder. Matthew 20 speaks to this kind of leadership. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Shepherds need to serve, not be served, just as Christ did, in that way, an example to the flock. Shepherds need to intimately be in the li- involved in the lives of their sheep, such that they can establish a godly pattern for others to follow. One of the most important aspects of spiritual leadership and its effectiveness is an exemplary life. Paul even went as far as exhorting his sheep to be imitators of him. I'm a long way from saying that to you this morning, but I can't be expecting or asking something of you that I am not willing and prepared to do myself. So, what is the application of all this shepherding? We've identified the command to the elders in the text shepherd the flock of God. We've parsed out three potential dangers in shepherding and have been exhorted to shepherd willingly eagerly, and by being examples to the flock. But before we look at verse 4 of the text to answer why we shepherd, I thought we'd reflect for a moment on what shepherding at South Shore looks like. Through scripture, we have seen that the primary function of a shepherd is to protect the flock, feed the flock, and care for the flock. So let's see how each of these areas are being addressed here at South Shore. As Levi puts up on the screen, Um, protecting the flock we do in a number of ways again this is not an exhaustive list but our membership process you may not see this as a function of protecting the flock but it is there's an application an interview an examination period and then a presentation of a membership candidate to you um, as the church through that membership uh, process we uh, work to affirm their faith and their salvation we ensure that they understand what it means to be a member We ensure that they are in significant agreement with our statement of faith. All things to protect the flock. The next thing we do to protect the flock is discipline. Members who step outside of scripture and the protection that it provides will be held accountable. The goal will always be restoration of the individual, but also to protect the flock. Another thing we do is the identification of false teachers, whether it's books or podcasts, or resources, or organizations to help you discern the biblical merit in the resources that you're using. And finally, we pray. We pray for you regularly, not just when you send us prayer requests and reach out to us. So the next uh, function of uh, shepherd is to feed the flock. So how are we feeding the flock here at South Shore? Well, one way that you might not always realize is feeding the flock is through vision and direction. We discern God's will for the church. We cast vision. We set direction. And we communicate this to you. Where God is taking us. What God is teaching us through that process. And another aspect of uh, feeding the flock is teaching. And it's not just from the pulpit on Sundays. Whether it's a study throughout the week or whether it's working with you as individuals or families through relational stress, through financial crisis, uh, through health challenges, we see that as an opportunity to sometimes teach directly, but often teach by example. What about discipleship, equipping you to rightly handle the Word of God, share the Gospel, and make disciples in our world? Finally, caring for the flock. A number of things we do here at South Shore to care for the flock. And some of these you might not even be aware of. Um, shepherding groups is one of the things we do, and that might be a new term for you. And we've been doing this informally for about a year and wanted to take this opportunity to let you know we were doing this. Um, each family has been assigned to an elder just to be accountable to know what's going on in your life. Now, you're probably looking at the screen behind and can't read that, and Levi will go to, just the next one? An easier one to read. And i know you're quickly all looking for your name here now please as you look for your name and you see your shepherd lots of grace right there's been lots of changes over the last six months so you're thinking that elder hasn't even spoke to me in the last two weeks okay give duncan lots of grace it's only been an hour right (laughs) so these are shepherding shepherding groups to know what's happening in your life we want this to be organic but it does have some intentionality behind it now this is more for us than it is for you we wanted you to be aware, but please don't see this as a limiting your access. Anybody can come to any one of us. We just want to make sure that no one is not cared for. No one falls through the cracks. So you may not know this, but at all of our elder meetings, early on in the agenda, we do shepherding reports. And we go through, and we each go through the families that we're responsible for and share with each other things that are going on in your lives. And then we spend a good chunk of time in our meeting praying through those things. Just so we're all on the same page, we can all um, provide some insight and some direction, and 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 things like that. So just so so this is more so you're aware this is happening, um, so that we don't uh, miss the care of any one of your families. Um, Second thing we're doing to care for the flock is our care ministry. Now a significant portion of our shepherding care happens through the aptly named care ministry. Um, So. I would say because of the confident, confidentiality surrounding the care ministry and, how, and when it functions, um, many of you probably don't know even how it functions or how much it's functioning, um, but so I wanted to take this opportunity. Uh, the elders have empowered Wayne and Lori Brown to steward this ministry, and they're doing a phenomenal job, and lots is happening, but it's not something you, that all of you may be aware of. You'll be thankful for that confidentiality if you ever need to tap into the care ministry for whatever reason. Um, so i wanted to take this opportunity to call jay up and wayne up and they're just going to do a little bit of an interview to familiarize um, yourself with the care ministry how it functions uh, at south shore okay
1: so first of all, we just wanted to say um, that we are so thankful for you and Lori as you uh, serve as stewards in this really important ministry and as blair has been saying Um, We all have uh, a part to play. Um, This is what God has laid upon your heart, and of course we trust that you'll continue to grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding as to how to apply and uh, serve the church uh, well. So uh, with that said, uh, three questions um, that uh, we have for you uh, that we'd love to hear uh, your answers on. First one is, what is the main goal of the care ministry here at SBC?
2: And we're—I should say—Lori and I are the stewards, but we are um, significantly supported by Mark and Terrianne. So four of us really work together to help care for uh, the flock. And so the main goal—there's uh, two, a couple of goals. Um, so the first one is to encourage and facilitate community, and that happens maybe two ways. Uh, As most of you are probably aware, we have kind of a communication mechanism which we call life together. And when we hear of a practical need, then we will broadcast that out to the church family to say, hey, there's someone in our church who has a a practical need. Uh And um, we broadcast that out and the family gathers together to help that person. So everything from, you know, hey, we're doing a significant amount of work on Saturday to raise uh, a barn. To uh, you know, I have a, a stroller that's broken, and wondering if someone in the church has a stroller that can loan to us. So that sounds familiar, actually, because we yes, get an email about that. That's right. That's a fresh one. The other way that we encourage uh, community is uh, by encouraging all of you to be aware of the people in your influence that you can help in practical ways in meals or um, watching children, you know, just these things that happen on a daily basis that uh, we could come alongside those within our uh, sphere of influence. But the biggest thing, Jay, is our main goal is is hope and encouragement. That, that's, that's probably our main goal. And those are probably the ones that Blair spoke of where uh, they're quite confidential and we may not know what's happening. And you know, we're, we're all going through this journey together and um, there's bumps uh, in the road. And it's during those times that we need uh, often uh, hope and encouragement. And, Jay, I think of my own journey, Lori and my journey. And um, the things that jump out during that journey is how the church family gathered around us.
1: Yeah.
2: At one point in time, I, uh, the company I was working for uh, was acquired by another company, so my job was made redundant. And job loss is a significant deal for uh, people when you lose work. And that same evening, uh, someone from our church uh, showed up at the house with uh, 10 pounds of ground beef. You know, this person That's was great. a farmer, and so I guess they have lots of ground beef lying around or something. So he Somewhere. showed up at the house with ground beef. and. It was just so encouraging for Lori and I to know that the family of God was around mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. It was so encouraging.
1: Wonderful, so what I'm hearing you say is that it's... I'm not done, Jay, hold Oh, on. you're not done. <laughs> Preach it.
2: This is only in the midst of my journey. <laughs> Another time, I was laid off again. This is a pattern. Uh, <laughs> I lost my job uh, another time, and again, someone in our church showed up at the door at the same day uh, with a check for $3,000 and just gave it wow. to us and said, you know, if you need this, you know, let us know, uh, or, you know, go ahead and cash it. And it was just incredible. And then finally, Jay, um, another time in my journey, I was quite young, and it was really an encouragement to my parents. I, I became very, very ill. My parents weren't believers, and they didn't know where to turn. And the principal of our our school, which is a Christian school, called my parents and said, our um, staff at our school are going to have a staff meeting, and we're going to pray for Wayne because he was so sick. Mm -hmm. And that was just incredible encouragement for my parents to see, oh, okay, so this is what the church does. Mm -hmm. And so these three examples, I guess, illustrate that what we want to do in the care ministry is, during those times when you need hope and encouragement because you are on a part of your journey and there's a bump on the road which you didn't anticipate, we as a church want to encourage and give you hope.
1: And you know, what I'm hearing as well is that it's not just, all oh, this us throw it on the care ministry they'll take care of it. The care ministry is almost that, that facilitator, that agent mm-hmm. that got us set in place as stewards to be able to say, okay, let's communicate what the need is, and so not just in particular circumstances, but helping us to always be aware of what are, what's going on in the lives of the people around us, and how can we serve them as Christ has served us. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, n- another question for you, what, uh, what role do the elders play in the care ministry?
2: So the elders play uh, a, an extremely important role. Um, on a practical level, uh, the elders establish the budget of the church. And to care for people, not always, but sometimes costs money. And so the elders uh, allocate uh, a portion of the budget to us so that we can care in practical ways. Uh, the other very important way, ways, uh, Blair's already mentioned, is is through prayer, a lot of the encouragement and um, the way that we support people is to pray for them, pray for them so that God can do work in their life. And and so this is where we work with the elders so that the elders can add that to their prayer list and and be praying. And then the other piece, Jay, is, you know, four of us, myself and Laurie and Mark and Tyrion, we're just four people and we have a limited amount of time and resources and insight and wisdom And we often have to lean on the time and wisdom and insight of the elders to come to the team and help us carry the burden. And so the elders play a significant role in that way.
1: And we seek to continue to grow and looking for opportunities to try to help the care ministry as well. Mm -hmm. I know when you're saying that, Blair, about imperfection, you know, that resonated with me, that uh, we're so imperfect at this and... Uh, reminds us that we can't just say, well, ministry's set, there we go, we have leaders, let's go. We have to constantly seek God's help to become better facilitators of that care ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, Wayne, what are the biggest needs of the ministry today as you see it?
2: Mm-hmm. The biggest need of the care ministry today is not what you may think right away, and that is we need more financial resources. That, that's actually not our biggest need. Our biggest need, you've already touched on it, Jay, and that is we can't help someone unless we are aware of their need and unless they communicate that need to us. Right. Uh, That's obvious. Uh, So the most important thing that you can do as a family to help us care for you is to make us aware of your need so that we can pray for you, so that we can encourage you, so that we can help you in practical ways. And uh, that's probably most important. Mm. So if you're communicating with each other and within your sphere of influence, someone shares with you a need, encourage that person to either themselves, themselves share that need with uh, Mark and Tyrianne, Laurie, or myself, or one of the elders, or to give you permission to share that with us, so that mm-hmm. we can then go to the person and say, "Hey, we've heard that um, you know you're having a difficult time in your journey. How can mm-hmm. we help you?" So that's probably our biggest need: is to uh, have more communication.
1: Excellent. Can we quickly pray for you? Mm-hmm. All right. Can we, can we join together in prayer? Father, thank you for all of the <laughs> ministry stewards here at SBC. <laughs> We particularly want to lift up the care ministry. We thank you for the leadership that Wayne, and Lori, Mark, and Ann provide in this ministry. And we ask you that you'll help us to take what we've learned today about that and take it to heart, not just in terms of information, but process it through and ask ourselves, uh, what is it that you would have for us to do in the care for those in the sphere of influence that we have? Father, it's very difficult to know everyone But Father, we have those people that are close to us, those people that are around us, those that we are aware of. And we would ask you that you would give us a heart energized by love to look out for each other in these particular ways. And also, as we have heard, to help us to communicate those needs effectively so that the church in particular could hear of them and that we all might be uh, facilitators and helpers together toward uh, accomplishing that which needs to be accomplished in the, the cares and situations that we all encounter. So Father, thank you for Wayne, our conversation today and the continued message as we think about the responsibility of elders is to facilitate ministry and especially now the care ministry we lift up to you
0: in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Wayne. So as we move toward the end, we're gonna look at verse four. Why? Why do we as shepherds, shepherd, do what we do? With no financial gain, with the pressure of leading an exemplary life and with greater accountability, why would anyone want to take on the daunting task of eldering? Aside from the privilege and joy of serving Christ, the text tells us, verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The chief shepherd is Jesus Christ. The shepherd imagery For the Messiah first appears in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, I believe, calls him the Good Shepherd. And then the writer of Hebrews calls Christ the Great Shepherd. And earlier in the letter from Peter, he calls him Shepherd and Overseer of your souls. Moving on in that verse, it uses the um, term appears. Appears means to make manifest, or to make clear, or to reveal, referring to when Christ returns. Then it talks about, um, at that time, as a shepherd, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In Greco-Roman times, uh, in the world of Peter's day, the prize for an athletic event was not a trophy, but rather a crown. 1 Corinthians 9 speaks of these crowns. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. These crowns were temporary and would eventually rust or fade, or if they were made of plants, they would die. Peter wasn't merely looking forward to some unfading version of an earthly crown, but he was metaphorically looking forward to eternal glory, which can never fade, which is imperishable, we read in other New Testament passages of the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of boasting, all of which are eternal and imperishable. The reward of, internal glory, of eternal glory um, ought to be the reason that any shepherd needs to serve faithfully. To be honest, that is a promise I often cling to. Shepherding is not always easy. It can be hard on our marriages, as our wives are asked to sacrifice over and over. It can be hard on our children, as they compete for our time and our attention. And it can be hard on some of our friendships, as we shepherd. But the honor of imperfectly shepherding each of you, the privilege of serving our Savior, and the promise of eternity far outweigh those earthly sacrifices. As I close this morning, the command is simple shepherd the flock of god that is among you as elders we have committed to do that and if you are a member here we have committed to you and your family shepherding is a serious sobering responsibility and for it we will be accountable to god however my question for you this morning is not how we are doing as shepherds but who has god put among you in your life that you are being called to shepherd to feed to protect to care for To disciple. And how are you doing with that responsibility? Are you willingly and eagerly investing in that relationship that God has placed in your life? Are you setting a Christ-like example for that person? If you are obediently shepherding and discipling, why are you doing it? Is the motivation a pat on the back? Is it an earthly reward or is it the promise of eternal glory? Be encouraged this morning, regardless of the capacity in which you shepherd. Faithful oversight will bring eternal reward. And on that day, your master will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That is why we shepherd. Let's pray. Father God, what an amazing privilege it is uh, to serve here at South Shore. We as elders are so grateful for the flock that you have entrusted to us. Father, so teachable, so encouraging, desiring to be more and more Christ-like. And Lord, as we're in this uh, season of equipping and growth, Father, we are so thankful for the unity that we are able to enjoy. Father, as we continue to hunger and thirst for your word. May we not get so consumed with being fed that we neglect our command to shepherd those that you have intentionally put in our care and our path. May we be faithful in each of these relationships, willingly serving with eagerness, Father, and striving to be a Christ-like example to those around us, not for material gain, Or earthly rewards, but rather in light of the inheritance that you have promised to us as believers. Father, thank you for the example that you have set before us on how to love, Father, how to forgive, how to serve one another, how to disciple others. It is truly an honor to be part of your flock and to be able to call you our shepherd. Father, continue to guide and direct our paths, our relationships, and our lives as we continue to seek to glorify you in all that we do. In your name I pray, amen.